This podcast is supported by Red Energy, powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Red is a hundred percent Australian-owned and local. Phone one three one eight zero six. Welcome to Tuesday with Ash Pollard, thanks to Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas, that's Red Energy. In this series, I'll be chewing the fat with my famous friends and a few foodies so we can learn more about them as human beings through their love of food. This week, I chat to the queerest of queer eyes, Carson Cressley. Carson and I met on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, where we bonded over some Bok testicles for dinner. TV personality, actor and designer, he joins us from his farm in the Pennsylvanian countryside, Carson! It's so good to see you, and I haven't seen you in the flesh since we were living in a jungle. I and know! I, I think back about that time, like, how the F did we do it? It was so weird. I remember, like, trying to eat every grain of rice. Like, remember, like, we have this bonding experience. So many weird things like washing dishes and swimming in that lagoon, which I would never, ever in a million trillion (laughs) years do. But I was so bored and desperate for shit to do. Um, and like sleeping out and people were like, did you sleep outside? I'm like, yes. And it would rain and it was a monsoon and (laughs) you'd have to check your boots for snakes and nothing was ever really dry. And we'd have to clean out the dunny. And I'm just like, what was I doing? But I I never sort of thought it would have been really hard for you because you went straight back to America and the rest of us sort of came back to Melbourne or Sydney so we could still catch up and debrief. But you left You had nobody to debrief with, so that would have been really difficult. No, it was so, um, I know we're getting off track. It was such a relief, you know, when you get eliminated and you go back to that that stupid hut in the sky (laughs) and and you do your interview. I was just so thrilled to be out of there. When I got back to the lodge, I was just like, oh my God, I've done it. And then I just, I relished that like 25 hour flight home via London. In business class. in business class. And um, honestly, this is going to sound so shallow. I thought, and I don't know, because we haven't talked about this yet, but the hardest thing for me was not being able to like organize my thoughts and have a calendar and write stuff Mm. down, have a pen and paper and be on my phone, not even to be on my phone, but to like make notes and stay organized in my mind. I remember writing things in the dirt at one point, just because I was desperate for a, a pad and a, a pen. So I was just right. like jotting things down with a stick in the dirt <laughs> for no good reason. Yeah. What was the first and thing you ate when you when you left? What was it that they gave you? Um, I think I had spaghetti bolognese. Same. I was so traumatised by like eating weird stuff. Like, you know, what they would do is constantly trick us. They'd be like, look at this beautiful cake you can have. Yeah. And then inside the cake was just, you know, a bunch of old decomposed worms and some pussy <laughs> eyeballs from a kangaroo or something. So I was just like, what's in this bolognese? Like, is this ground up monkey or something <laughs> weird? Because we ate some weird stuff. Did I always... any of that change the way you thought about food, our experience in the jungle? Um, Maybe a little bit about weird foods. And I'm not a weird food person. So to me, like when you go for sushi, like I have salmon and I have tuna. And if there's any kind of like eel or like 
stingray or something weird. I'm just like, no. But after eating like eyeballs and lamb testicles and box neck, uh, <laughs> you're kind of like, I'll try it. It can't be it. That The thing about that show is that if you embrace it and you do it, uh, it really does liberate you. And you're just like, oh, I can swim in that muddy lake. I've, I've swum with a bunch of like anacondas mm. in an underground habit trail. <laughs> so it does. It puts your fears into perspective. Don't you think, though, after a while, those fears and, and the perspective that you have just goes out the window after a while and you're back in normal life. You've, you've finally got a taste for delicious food again and, and beautiful thousand thread count sheets. And then suddenly mm-hmm. you lose perspective all over again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you do, it takes about a week and then you're just like back <laughs> to your normal life. Yeah. Um, but I still, there's like 10% of my brain memory in the back of my head that is just like the full of those memories about, you know, just being able to rough it. And um, although I did have, remember, I brought my thousand thread count Pratesi sheets along. I know. As my, as my luxury item. And everyone was so <laughs> pissed at me because you're supposed to bring, a, I didn't know, like I specifically didn't watch the show because I didn't want to know what was going to happen because I would have backed out. You know, but so your your item I, wasn't selfish. You're about to tell, you're about to say that it was selfish, but in saying no, that- I'm, my item was also pretty self-indulgent. I brought a, a mattress to put on my little, to my on right. my bed because I didn't want to be uncomfortable. So you bought a beautiful sheet. Yes, I I didn't. I wasn't even being selfish. I was just being stupid because I didn't do my research. I didn't know that your luxury item should be an item that passes the time. You know, like Scrabble or a dartboard or a guitar or knitting needles. I thought. I, I could use this sheet to like catch fish and to make a lean to and to make bandages <laughs> if we were injured. So I was, I was thinking I was going on survivor, I guess. Um, and that was, that was um, bad advice. I got from fellow Aussie Kim Johnson Hershevec oh. because she did survivor. And she's like, listen, I brought a sheet. It was great. I made a lean to, and then I made some bandages and I could use it as clothing. And I, I thought I was going to be so prepared, but Different show. <laughs> Can we rewind back to your childhood? You you grew up yeah. in Pennsylvania. Yes. Yes, Pennsylvania. I, I feel like I should be laying down for this. Why? Um, yes. Um, I did grow up in Pennsylvania, and I'm actually back there right now on quarantine because, you know, we all love to go home, and I couldn't wait to get out of here when I turned – when I graduated from college uh, – I think it was May 6th, 1991. And on May 7th, I moved to New York City. I was like, I am getting out of Dodge. And uh, I took the bus and I didn't know which way 42nd Street went. I didn't know what was east and west. And I was just a hayseed off the turnip truck. And I couldn't wait to move to New York City. And now I still have a place in New York City, but I've been here quarantining on my farm in Pennsylvania that I purchased about five years ago next to my childhood home. Oh, you're kidding. And, uh, yeah, so it's very much 
I haven't been home this much since eighth grade. So even though you haven't been home this much since eighth grade, do, do you think that you're a bit of a homebody still? Because who on earth buys a property next to their childhood home? I do. Mm. Um, I love where I'm from. I'm not one of those people. Sometimes you meet people like, God, I hated where I grew up. I'm never going back there. I hated the people and whoever. I've always had fond memories because my family is here and they're still here. And we're very deeply rooted to this part of Pennsylvania. Like there are like roads with our name on it. And we've been here since like 1750 or something. So I've always felt a real connection to this place. And um, we have a farm here that's been in my family since the 20s when my grandparents got married. And then my parents bought it from them. And since then, my sister and I now own it. And then this house was available kind of next door. And it was a a really beautiful house that I remember seeing being built when I was a kid. And I was like, God, I'd love to live in a house like that someday. It was on a hill and it looked fancy to me. I didn't know any better. (laughs) And uh, so now I have it. It was a bit of a dream actualized. I love that. I mean, it's amazing. A beautiful story. And in fact, we uh, as viewers of your Instagram have had the pleasure of, of seeing bits and pieces of your amazing sprawling farm, including your kitchen, which um, right. during COVID and lockdown and isolation, you've been making so many delicious pies, dessert pies in particular. Right. I didn't know you were such a fabulous cook. I'm really, I really wasn't, but I do love, this is a time for comfort food and this is a time when you have time on your hands. And it's also a time when all restaurants are closed here. Mm. So aside from pizza and some other uh, dubious takeout, which, you know, great pizza is wonderful, but the pizza we have around here is not so great. So I just thought I have time now. I'm going to start trying to eat like, Um, a little bit healthy because I think eating at home is always a little healthier than eating out. Um, But I just, I I have old cookbooks from like, this is a really Pennsylvania German area. So there was a lot of regional cookbooks that I was exploring and I was making old family recipes that are really comforting for me because I grew up with them and for my family and my parents. So they're pretty simple, first of all, simple like farmer fare. Yeah, I've noticed that they're very simple, like simple pies, Simple, like main dishes. Give give us an example. Like, you know what I'm really good at making? These are all old farm recipes. And they really, the people around here truly lived farm to table. And so that's kind of how I've been cooking. And I know it's trendy now, but it was necessity back then. So it's really simple ingredients, things that you would have at the ready on a farm. So a lot of dairy, a lot of eggs and things that are in season. So it's just now spring here. And it was so dreary with COVID and the weather was cold and I was just waiting for things to come alive. The first thing that grows really here is rhubarb. So I was making and I have a big rhubarb patch Mm -hmm. and um, a simple custard that the Pennsylvania Germans make. You just take a pie shell and this is the easiest, most delicious, simple pie you could ever make. And you can make it with whatever seasonal fruit is available. So early spring, I was making rhubarb. I started using strawberries now that they're in season, blueberries. Pretty soon I'll make cherry. Mm. But the base is the same. And it's so easy. You take a cup of milk. I add a little bit of cream to make it a little richer. Um, A half a cup of sugar. So it's not super naughty. Uh, Two eggs. And a tablespoon of cornstarch. So like the most basic ingredients, 
you whisk it together and it turns into like a like a golden milk, you know, color because of the eggs. Mm-hmm. And then you add one cup of your favorite fruit. And like I said, I started with using okay. rhubarb, but then I went into strawberries. I go into blueberries. I'm making one tonight even with cherries. Stop. Um, and that fruit just floats on the top. And then the whole thing bakes. And it's kind of like a country creme brulee. Um, but it's got fruit on the top. And it bakes. And the, and the milky custard gets kind of caramelized. Oh. And the fruit is kind of um, fossilized in there, like oh. in the custard. And that fruit flavor bleeds into the golden brown egg flavor. It's And then there's crust. So it's really good. I oh. wish I could send you one. This sounds like a pornography. It's delicious. Yeah, custody and rich. Oh, yes. Put it in an unbaked pie shell, and then I bake the whole thing for 45 minutes at 350 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) Right. We do Celsius here. You'll have to figure that out. And um, I'm very confused by, like, uh, again, one of my best friends is Australian, my friend Kim from Dancing with the Stars. And we'll cook a lot when I, I stay with her in L.A. She has a fabulous house, and we're best friends. And she's like, oh, darling, you need some caster sugar. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but caster sugar is just like sugar, sugar. And then I was like, okay, do we use confectioner sugar for the icing? And that's something else too, like 10X or something? No, we call it we call it icing sugar. We don't call it that. We call it confectioner sugar. And it's the one that you dust over the top of things. Yeah, or you use it in a in an icing, like you mix it in with like milk and butter to make a buttercream. Exactly. So we call that icing sugar, but the caster sugar that you were talking about, it's not normal sugar. It's like super small oh. gra- granules rather than just like a regular white sugar. Mm, okay. I, I don't, don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why we call it caster I- sugar. I thought she was being very fancy. Now I know she's a charlatan and it's just <laughs> sugar is sugar. Sugar, sugar, doll. <laughs> You're listening to Tuesday with Ash Pollard. Thanks to Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. That's Red Energy. Tell me, what did your parents do when you were growing up? What was their line of work? My dad owns a car dealership. So, and I'm the youngest and the youngest is always the most spoiled. <laughs> so I, I remember like, you know, turning 16, I was like, daddy, I want a BMW. Uh, I think I got a Ford Mustang, but eventually I got the <laughs> BMW uh, because I was spoiled. And, um, and my mom kind of worked for his company and would do like, my mom literally like could drive a tow truck if she needed to. And oh. she was like a beauty queen, you know, like a, a dairy farmer beauty queen, like the Miss Milkmaid pageant. Like she was very pretty, but she was also like could do anything. Mm. So, um, yeah, and they're, they're still with us. They're 82 and 84. And um, the funniest thing ever is that during quarantine, they live, we have like a compound. So their house is not far from here. I have my own house, but uh, I would take them desserts and dinner. And then I would usually like, we'd watch TV together. And on Friday nights, RuPaul's Drag Race is on. And I'm a judge on that show. So I've never been home with them to watch it, but I have been during quarantine. Oh, hysterical. So um, watching RuPaul's Drag Race with your 80-something parents is very interesting. Um, my mom is mesmerized by the clothes. She's just like, these outfits are beautiful. And she's like, now, is that a man? I'm like, they're all men. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then my dad doesn't even like, he's somewhat deaf. 
And um, he doesn't hear the commentary from my mom. And he is just there because he likes beautiful women and um, and and low cut dresses. So he's all down for the boobs. Oh, he, he straight up thinks they're a bunch of chicks. I'm not sure. I haven't, <laughs> had that, I haven't had that conversation. I think he knows that they're drag queens, but some of them are so good um, that he's, you know, he just loves the, the way they look. So it's been very enlightening. <laughs> You you actually didn't come out to your parents until just before um, Queer Eye for the straight guy. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. Can you believe that? I can't. I mean, I, you know, I, um, like so many kids, like I grew up, we didn't talk about it. I went to college. I moved to New York City. Um, I never brought, you know, girlfriends home, obviously. And then um, I was like 30-ish and... Uh, the show was coming out and the producer said, oh, my gosh, we're going to be on the cover of the TV guide for our premiere. And I was just like, oh, shit, I better go home and have the conversation just to, like, prepare them. And because they knew I was making a TV show and they're like, what's it called? I'm like, I'm not sure yet. Oh, my God. Like, oh, it's good. This is like on a Saturday and the show's coming out on a Tuesday and the TV guide's dropping on a Monday. So um, I remember it was a rainy, stormy day and I was coming home from the train station and my mom was driving me in her minivan. And I was like, yeah, um, the name of the show is called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And she was like, that's a weird name. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, I said, I'm one of the queer eyes. And she's like, what does that mean? And then we had to, have, you know, I was like, oh, I'm gay. And she was like, okay, um, so what do you want for dinner? So it was a very... <laughs> um, it was a very like waspy East Coast, like we're not going to talk about it anymore. Right. And it's totally fine. And uh, and then I was worried about my dad and he was totally fine. And I think like so many people like me that are so, you know, so you might call me somewhat flamboyant. Um, I think they already knew. So it was just like big surprise. OK, so did you need to talk about it after that at any point? Was it touched no. on ever again? No, like the coming out story wasn't touched on, but certainly that allowed me to be liberated as far as saying, oh, I'm seeing this guy and oh. he's going to come for the weekend to my, my house and we're going to hang out and they might be at lunch. It allowed me to obviously be more honest and authentic with them from that point after. But it is, you know, it's really hard coming out and so many LGBTQ youth are just like, I'm really scared about coming out. And you do have to be prepared and you have to have a safety net. But it is, if all of the stars are aligned and you have support from your family, it's a wonderful thing because it does allow you to just be your authentic self, which is the most wonderful thing in the world. Do you remember the first time you brought a, a bloke over to your house to have dinner with your parents? My first very serious relationship was probably when I was like about 36 or 37. My boyfriend at the time, John, would come for like Christmas. And it was just, you know, it was never a discussion. And my mom is so gracious and sweet Aww. and so Lutheran and nice <laughs> that, you know, she just wanted to make sure like any house guest and he didn't stay over. But like any house guest, she wanted to make sure that he was super comfortable and, you know, had great food to eat and always had a cocktail, sat in a good chair and, you know, we're very hospitable people. What does Christmas look like in Pennsylvania? Well, it's cold because it's, it's you know, we're pretty far north. Hopefully we have snow. I love a very traditional Christmas. I mean, we're pretty, 
on a perfect Christmas, we'll either have, you know, dinner at my sister's house and she has an old Pennsylvania stone farmhouse from the 1850s. Mm. So it's pretty classic. And then we'll all wear our, you know, uh, collectible Christmas sweaters. I usually wear a Ralph Lauren something or other. Oh, of course you do. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's a little church in our neighborhood where we go to candlelight services and um, we eat lots of ham. And then Christmas morning is, that's Christmas Eve. And then Christmas morning is um, presents and then more ham. So any any type of Pennsylvanian fare that we should know about? Like a pretzels from Pennsylvania? Yeah, I think so. I think so. All the best ones are from Pennsylvania. Like I was saying, I mean, there's um, you're gonna there's a phrase called the Pennsylvania Dutch, and that's really a misnomer. It's really Pennsylvania Deutsch, which means German. Mm. So the people that settled here were predominantly German. So there's a lot of that type of food. So the Dutch and the Amish and the Mennonites make yummy, yummy food and they make fantastic pies and it's hearty farm fare. Oh, there's an so, Amish community um, in Pennsylvania, is there? Yeah, no, the Amish That's are like from Pennsylvania. And oh. um, out here where I live at, the, at my country house, when you go to the grocery store, there's a hitching post and sometimes there's a horse and buggy. I took my friends grocery shopping. They came to visit finally. A couple got brave enough to like come for a visit. And um, there was an Amish buggy parked at the grocery store and their minds were blown (laughs) because we're only an hour and a half from New York City. That's insane. My mind would be blown too because you don't see that sort of stuff here in Australia. Not at all. Hardly. Don't quote me, but when they turn 18, I believe... You get like three months to go crazy. It's oh. called Rumspringa, which means run around. And you get to do whatever you want. Like if you want to go to Daytona Beach and be in a wet t-shirt contest, have at it. Or if you want to like <laughs> go to New York City and sell your pies to strangers, have at it. And then after that three-month period of living with modern people, you decide whether you're going to stay with the, the sect or if you're going to um, be a dissenter. I think that's what they call it. You're listening to Tuesday with Ash Pollard. Thanks to Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. That's Red Energy. When you worked at Ralph Lauren, is it Ralph Lauren? It is Ralph Lauren. It's Ralph Lauren. And uh, I've had to um, school a lot of people on that, even in Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. I think I took a guy there for like a wedding tuxedo dinner jacket thing. And he's like, are we going to Ralph Lauren? And I was like, we're going to Ralph Lauren, honey. Oh, um, Yeah, it's Lauren. And uh, you can uh, you can see my surroundings because we're Skyping now or whatever. And um, I love the Ralph Lauren aesthetic. I always have. Mm. And um, my house kind of looks like that. I can't help myself. And it's um, all very it was, bright and sort of mismatched. But but for some reason it works. It's definitely got a twist. Ralph Lauren has so many um, motifs, I guess I would say. And sometimes it's old Hollywood and sometimes it's the American West. And sometimes it's, you know, old England prep school. Divine. And um, I think they always like to do something with a twist so it's not boring. So I would, you know, I learned so much there about styling and, you know, like you said, doing like a pinstripe blazer and a tuxedo shirt, but then pairing it with ripped jeans and like evening slippers. Yeah. Makes it fun. So did models back when you were working at Ralph Lauren really eat cardboard and lettuce to fill up on? Or was it the, oh, or was it the champagne and cocaine diet? They didn't eat lettuce, just cardboard. Oh. <laughs> uh, 
I dealt mostly with male models, lucky me. Mm. They were so lucky because they were all like 23 years old. And I would be like eating a, a small cube of cheese and they would be having like hamburgers and French fries. And I was like, wait, you're a model, oh. but you're also like a 21 year old man who can eat whatever they want. So it was very um, unfair. Okay, so the, the, the girls potentially were eating cardboard. Possibly, possibly. I think that's changed, though, for the better. I wonder if they add salt and pepper. I don't know. We're going to have to ask. I'm going to have to find a, a 19, an early 2000s, late 1990s supermodel. Was it a lot of schmoozing back in those days, working with Ralph Lauren, like lots of boozy lunches? and? No. Oh. No. I was pretty much in the trenches. I was I was either in design and we would be, you know, presenting collections to Ralph and he would come in and look at the wall and say, I like this. I don't like that. And, you know, that part of fashion design is not that glamorous. And I tell young people all the time, like they think it's all, you know, like parties and like runways. Most of fashion design is, you know, picking out buttons and finding out sending tech packets, you know, to the factory. It's not that glamorous at all. And then when I finally did work my way up and I was styling some of the shows, I did get to go to Milan and I did get to fly first class. And I would, I was quite young, like in my late twenties, but I was on a plane, like sitting next to Calvin Klein. Oh, wow. Uh, who hated me because I was all awash in Ralph Lauren. I even had RL slippers on. I saw him <laughs> look down at my feet when I was trying to squeeze by him. And he was like, oh no, who is this person? Um, <laughs> So it was glamorous towards the end, but most of it is, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of schlepping. There's not a lot of schmoozing. It's a lot of hard work. I think that's what a lot of people don't realise. In the fashion industry and the entertainment industry, it's not at all glamorous, at all. No, usually not. I would say it's 10% glamorous and being in showbiz, yes, we get to do really fun things. I love going to award shows and there's fun parties and uh, you get to know people like, you know, I could say hi to Oprah and she's like, hey, Carson, mm. let's, you know, let's have some tequila. I'm like, all right. Um, that's the mind blowing stuff that I'm just like, oh, my gosh, how is this happening? But most of the time you're like up early, getting in a car, going to like a dingy studio somewhere and like sitting in hair and makeup for a long time and then sitting around waiting to shoot and then shooting for a little bit and then sitting around some more. So it's it's wonderful work, and I'm very grateful for it, and I love it. But it's not, you know, it's not glamorous. Maybe when you're a movie star, it is. But even then, those guys work so hard. Oh, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. I mean, I wouldn't know I'm a Z-grade celebrity here in Australia, so, you know. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. <laughs> Well, my friend, it has been a pleasure. Do you have something to do now? Have you got another appointment? I no, I'm going to I'm going to bake that pie and um, go to bed. Thank you so much for sharing everything and taking the time. Of course, of course. Anything for you. You know I adore you. Praise be, Carson Cresley. What a man. That has inspired me to pop to the kitchen and make Carson's pie immediately. 
to see Carson's amazing recipes and content on Instagram, chuck him a follow at Carson Cressley. Carson with a C, Cressley with a K. And if you'd like to ask me a question, head to my Instagram at ashpollard underscore underscore. Thanks for listening to Tuesdays with me, Ash Pollard. All thanks to Red Energy. Now is the time to switch to a 100% Australian electricity and gas retailer. Call 131 806. If you enjoyed Tuesday with Ash Pollard, then check out the other podcasts in the Red Energy Lifestyle series. For all things parenting, enjoy Mum Plus One with Joe Stanley. But I have to admit, at the height of coronavirus lockdown, I gave up on all screen time restrictions. 100% Australian electricity and gas. That's Red Energy. Thanks for listening to Tuesday with Ash Pollard, part of the Red Energy Podcast Lifestyle Series. Available on your favourite podcast platform and the SE app.